Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to GCSE English Revision Pod. We are getting close to your exams, but as both Liverpool and Tottenham have shown us on this momentous week, amazing things can happen right at the end, right when things seem to be perhaps Chelsea as well. Gone. Yeah, but I don't want to give them any credit there. But um, they... Uh, Yes, we are close to the exams. We are perhaps in the sort of 75th minute of the game. Yep, um, and we are focusing again on English language, but mm. next week we will we might release a few cheeky literature pre-exam podcasts to help you out. Try if we can get that so in early we, next week. We teach AQA to our students, so this is primarily focused on AQA. We're looking at question four from language paper one. Yes. Um, so this is a, a big question on, on AQA. It's worth uh, 20 marks. Mm. And uh, the way I see this question is it's a combination of all the skills that you've learned from questions two and three, plus the skill of evaluation. Right. And what it means by evaluation, of course, is that you are sort of weighing up an idea. You're exploring the sort of pros and cons of an idea. Yeah. You'll be asked whether you agree or disagree with a statement, but the mm. truth is you'll the best candidates will always agree with certain aspects, mm-hmm. uh, and they might be slightly more precise. We'll look at some examples as we go on today. Sounds good. So um, AQA want to see an overview statement at the start of each paragraph. Mm-hmm. They talked about how things like, you know, we might think that yeah. because, um, uh, to a certain extent, I agree. One way in which we could agree with yeah. the statement would and, be. And that kind of language that shows you're trying out ideas, you could agree. It yeah. seems possible to agree. Right, so um, st- stick away from concrete statements, stick yes. away from absolute Absolutism. Yeah. yeah, and we've got two model answers which we're not going to read out today, but they are printed on the handout. So right. make sure, please, if you've not done so already, please click on the link in the bio and download the handout now. Absolutely. Spotify users, you will have to copy and paste the link into your browser because for the life of me, I cannot make that link work. But yes, off you go. We will see you very, very shortly. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, um, One way to structure it, I've put a little way to structure your paragraphs before we get into an example, is I start a paragraph with an evaluative topic sentence. So one sentence that focuses on the statement in the question, Mm -hmm. that mentions the writer's name perhaps, and that goes into a bit of detail. So kind of phrases like, to a certain extent I agree that blah 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 blah, Mm -hmm. because blah 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 blah. So straight away, having that precision. Mm. So once you've done that, you then need to... Just like on question two or question three, you need to use some quotations as evidence for that opinion. Absolutely. And this is your bread and butter stuff that you have been doing throughout 
both this paper and your English course. You've made your evaluative statement. You're saying how you're going to explore the topic. Now we need contextualised evidence to analyse, right? Yeah. And again, I say quotations. Um, better to say a lot about a little than a little about a lot, but you might want to analyse more than one quotation, particularly if there's more than one thing doing the same thing. Yes. We then want to start off with our simple analysis of that. So if we're doing kind of language analysis, what, is the, what are the connotations of that word? What does that simile imply? Why did the writer use that metaphor? And of course, bringing analysis back to the question, yeah. right? So we then develop our analysis in mm. a little bit more detail. We might link in another quotation. And at the end of our paragraph, as you said, bring it back to the question, how does this add to our evaluative argument? Fantastic. How, how does this show? So this will become apparent when we, if you read the model answers on the sheet, this will become really, really apparent. Yeah, um, and you've, I can see you've gone into much more depth. The thing you just described is there in much more detail yeah, on so the handout. On the well. handout, it explains in a series of bullet points exactly what this looks like. And it has some sentence starters to help you out with that. Brilliant. So um, let's start by looking then at the first extract. Um, the extract is from a novel that actually we read on our last episode. Um, it's by Hilary Mantel. It's called Bring Up the Bodies. Mm -hmm. um, if you've not read the extract yet, we're not going to be reading it out now because it's too long. So yes. you need to read it on the handout. This is a, an episode where you certainly must have the handout. Good. Um, it's not, you know, even if you just get it on your phone and you quickly skim over it, um, you need to do that as we read. Okay. So, um, to context, before you pause and read through it, um, this extract is from the beginning of the novel Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel. It's told from the point of view of Thomas Cromwell, a close friend of King Henry VIII. Here they have spent um, the day hunting with hawks and horses. The hawks are named after Cromwell's dead family. Very good. Do you want them to read it now? I will just read the question. Mm -hmm. um, I always read the question before I read the answer. The question is, focus this part of your answer on the second half of the source. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at the first half, we're looking at the second half. Generally, this question asks you to look at the second a half. A chunk of, the of it. Oh, really? But always read the question. Mm. A reviewer wrote this part of the text, where Cromwell describes the countryside, changes the tone to an almost wistful one, which contrasts with the violence of the hunting. To what extent do you agree? There's one word in there we might want to start by looking at. <laughs> yes. And that is wistful. Wistful. I'd hope they don't use that word. I mean, I set this, this question summer. and I'm a horrible person. Yeah. But if you did have a nightmare scenario of an examiner like me, mm. um, who, who uses a word like wistful, even if you don't know what it means, you can have a good guess by reading the extract. Yeah. And think, what, what might wistful? Also, um, often with new words, think what other words it sounds like. It doesn't always help, but wistful sounds a bit like wish. Mm. Um, and actually, wistful is the idea of almost going to be hopeful, dreamy. Right. You know, so actually what we've got here is a tone that's very... And also, you, the other kind of clue as to what it means is if it's a contrast with the violence of hunting, mm. violence is a negative thing, so we can infer that wistful is presumably a positive, positive word. So even if you didn't know what wistful was... I'd be looking out for things that were different from the violence of hunting. Yeah. And I would be saying that they are wistful in the exam, and the examiner wouldn't know that I didn't know what wistful meant. Well, exactly. You've stitched the, yourself, the examiner, right up there. You've, yes. uh, you've, you've outthought yourself. Outthought them. So what mm. I'd like you to do now, um, so the question we're evaluating in the second half of the source, is the tone changed from the violence? So at the first half of this source, um, we have a really detailed description of the men hunting with hawks and the blood, the guts, the violence of these mm -hmm. hunts. In the second half, um, the, the writer moves the focus. I mean, what's the focus in the second half? We go on to much more the sort of life after hunting and it's done in both a sort of practical terms and the idea that there's all this business that must be done after the dinner and um, the working night begins, right? Uh, and then there's 
also this then idea of um, the uh, autumn coming in, the metaphorical idea that autumn is on its way and it's both the season of autumn and also perhaps the metaphorical idea of autumn that this this joyous period of hunting the has come to an end i guess yeah so what we'd like you to do now please we'd like you to pause the podcast and make sure you've got the handout and read through the extract on bring up the bodies specifically looking for whether you can spot this change and whether you do agree with the idea that the imagery of violence has become this wistful imagery and focusing on quotations with metaphors similes the words with interesting connotations that prove mm. this highlight a crew welcome back welcome back to gcse english revision pod where we are now going to take you through the answer that you hopefully might have started to come up with yeah so there is a model answer on the sheet but rather than reading that through, which wouldn't be particularly helpful, I mean, you can certainly read it in your own time, yeah. we're going to talk you through the process of things that we thought about analysing okay. um, and why we thought about analysing them. So my topic sentence that might initially be something like, I- I'd like to focus on the weather to start with in the second mm. half. So initially, at least, the reviewer's assessment of the tone of the second half of the extract seems quite correct. The passage does indeed appear almost wistful, contrasting with the violence of the hunter. Now, I like what you've done there, because while you said it initially, at least, straight away you're evaluating. You're saying on yeah. first reading you agree with this statement, but there's going to be more to your argument. Yeah, and we're hinting to the examiner that there's more than one way of looking at this, and that's a really high-level skill. So we now need to get some quotations in to prove that this seems the case. Okay. So the quotations we've got are around the evocative description of the weather. So we might look at things like the sun has shone on Henry, and obviously you could analyse the symbolism there and the pathetic fallacy of him, you know, of the, of of this move away from the from the violence of hunting to how impressive a figure Henry is. Yep. Um, like the sun, you know, um, how the clouds scudded in from the west and the rain fell in big scented drops. We could analyse the, the 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 even the rain doesn't seem to ruin the summer. Mm. It seems to function as this almost like a perfume. Wow. Um, we could look at how the you know, we could look at how it's so clear that you could see into heaven and spy on what the saints are doing. That's a really nice image, isn't it? That suggests that the um, the day is so clear that not only in the sense that the weather's beautiful, but also this idea that there's all, it's almost transcending the weather. The, the, the day is so clear. There's almost an honesty and a beauty to that day. Yeah. And the word I've used in the analysis, actually, it sets up the landscape as seeming, seemingly prelapsarian. Prelapsarian. One of your favourite words. Yeah. I mean, I use it all the time. Yeah, you use um, it, especially in your year nine of mice and men scheme of work, yeah. I've, I've oh, seen. Um, shouldn't teach my lessons then, no, Mr. Kelly. if I did my so, own, I wouldn't have to work. Um, but... <laughs> uh, so prelapsarian. So pre is a prefix meaning before. Um, lapsarian sounds a bit like lapse. So it's when you make a mistake. So the idea. So prelapsarian means before the mistakes mankind made. Before the before Adam and Eve in the Christian tradition ate from the the tree of knowledge and were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. So oh, wow. prelapsarian literally means like the Garden of Eden in the before, Bible. Before before yeah. everything Bef- went before wrong. Before everything went wrong. It's one of those things where I, c- I can't believe a word is needed for it. Yeah, I mean, but then think about your own life and the, the, the times before you made the fall of mankind happen. Right, and how everything was so beautiful before yeah. then. It's a nice word. Shouldn't be eating them, them apples. No. So, um, uh, what, the way we could use that is that the imagery draws upon this religious semantic feel, the idea of heaven, the idea of saints, um, the idea even the, the, the imagery of the sun here, to set up the, the idea that actually the landscape of the summer was not simply one of violence, but one of beauty. 
Yeah. So, so far, essentially, you are agreeing with the statement. You're saying, yes, there's an argument to be made that it is indeed um, a wistful, contrastingly wistful tone which is created. Yeah. And if you wanted to evaluate that straight away, you could actually do a slight counter-argument here, which You're I going do. straight in with the counterpoint. Yeah, I mean... I, I, it's I, taking a risk, listeners. Yeah, it is a bit of a risk. But what you could... I mean, to, mm. the AQA have said you do not need to disagree with the statement. You could get a very good mark simply agreeing. Yeah. As long as you're precise in why you're agreeing. So that you've got to be precise in which bits you're agreeing with. Do you think sort of 75-25% is a sort of ballpark figure as yeah, most to, of I your answer? Th- I, wouldn't tr- I wouldn't force a disagreement in case there isn't really one. Because if, yes. if it was simply saying this passage is exciting and it's an exciting passage, it's very difficult to find a counter-argument. Right. So um, I would just think what's my... you know. Is there anything? And if there is, you'd yeah. feel free to say it. So one point I would say is, is is the question, if you look at it, of course, says that the tone changes in the second half. Yeah. So that the first half is violent, the second half is wistful. But actually, I think there's something wistful about the first half. Ah. And the reason for that is I think that he doesn't simply focus on the brutality of the hawks, but actually on their majesty and grace. And the fact that they're named after Cromwell's dead family... Mm. implies that the, the the fact that these hawks are flying on the upper currents of the air could be a symbol, a metaphor that seems to imply that his sisters, his sister, his his dead sister, his dead wife, his dead daughters, flying up to heaven. Wow. Flying up to paradise. So if I've understood you correctly, what you are saying is in a, your evaluation of the statement is that the statement is not completely correct because it isn't taking into account that the first part of the extract is not all violence and yeah. gore and guts. There's actually something wistful, something wistful in there already. Ah, yeah. oh, that's interesting. That's an so, interesting so way of You may not pick it. that out, and if you didn't pick that in the exam, you certainly could still get full marks without that kind of point. Yeah. But it's just giving you the example of the way in which you don't have to disagree fully. You can say, yeah, the second half is wistful, but actually the first half is also a little bit wistful. That's a, that's a perfect example of how a little disagreement can yeah. really serve you well. So other points we could look at... Um, is the wistfulness in the depiction of Henry VIII. Right, so now you're going back to sort of agreeing with the yeah. statement again. So we could talk about actually, you know, um, unlike how he previously enjoyed this riot of dismemberment, you know, ripping apart birds, mm. when they arrive back at Wolf Hall, Mantell portrays, that's the writer, portrays Henry as being disinclined to go indoors. And he just stands with his friend Cromwell and talks his way back through the landscape of the day. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting kind of metaphor, that, because it implies that time is like a place, that they can stand, they can walk back through the day as they stand and talk about it mm-hmm. and remember it. Enjoying those memories, savouring those memories. Yeah, and there's, and there's this long list of things that, that he remembers, the green copses and rushing screens, the alders by the water's edge, the early haze that lifted by nine, the brief shower, the small wind that died and settled the stillness, the afternoon heat. Lovely stuff. So it's, uh, it's very much saying, yep, there, uh, here is another way in which we could consider it wistful, and it's Henry's memory of the day and relationship with the day um, that does this. Yeah, and this kind of listing of details, I kind of use a metaphor myself here, is kind of like this cacophony of images. Mm. So cacophony is when um, everything kind of plays at once in an orchestra yep. or music, so it sounds really, everything like it's overlapping and it's really confusing you know that from doing your trombone yeah don't you? of course love mm. my trombone mm. um and it, so this cacophony of images um implies that that henry is being wistful at this point he's on un- he's he's not caught up in the violence of the hunt in his memories he's caught up in the beauty of the landscape yeah he does transition from violence to that wistful beauty doesn't he that's very so perhaps there's this other side to the king yeah interesting 
Okay. So I, I think you know th- those are probably the main points that we'd look at. Yes. If you've um, got all of that in, you're already definitely in that top band, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a second example that we have on our sheet, which is from a, a novel that used to be one of my favourite novels, and it's still up there. It's probably top twenty. Oh really? It's, it's fallen out of the top ten. I didn't. I didn't realise it was so high. It's fallen out of the top ten, but it's it's in the it's probably in the top twenty. I had to do it at uni. Maybe to top like, twenty-five. Could do it a reread. She's a fantastic writer. So Sylvia Plath. She only wrote one novel, um, The Bell Jar, which is this is from. But mm. the writing is just so beautiful. And in terms of your language, paper one, question five. Look at how she uses metaphors and similes, yeah. and just be look on her works, ye mighty and despair. Wow. To quote Ozymandias. Another little, another little, little cheeky pod something reference. for you there. Amazing. Something for all you. If you don't know conflict, what that means, <laughs> you might be doing other relationships, or you've not revised. Yeah. So um, this extract is taken. Uh, this is example B on your handout, page five of your handout. The extract we're going to look at is taken from the opening chapter of Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar. And this is all about the protagonist, the main character's depression, as she spends the summer holidays in New York at an internship. Right. So, one top tip again that I've said multiple times, always read the context that's at the top of the extract. It tells you what the extract's about. Yeah. So even if you don't fully understand the extract, we know it's about depression, and we know she's in New York, I mean, no, she's at an internship. Okay, so you're looking, you're looking for these features, right? You're straight away, you're looking for language that either describe a low mood or perhaps reasons for that or whatever they may be. Yeah. But you're being guided to look at that kind of language. Yeah, and in particular, the easiest things to analyse are always kind of figurative language, similes, metaphors, personification, yeah. um, motifs. This car feels a bit like a prison. It does. That kind of thing. Yeah, uh, like, you know, um, your sure personality is like... Careful, I'm going to say here. <laughs> bell jar, yeah, yeah. trap him in. So, um, the question we're going to look at is this. From the opening to Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar, we immediately pity the protagonist, Esther Summerson. Uh-huh. To what extent do you agree? agree? Mm-hmm. So, the question is asking us, do we agree that we pity Esther Summerson? I think this is much more, of the two, this is mm, quite realistic in terms of yes. the kind of one they would ask, isn't it? I'd Very say... much, you know, the word wistful in the last one was me being... Yeah, me. But that's good. I mean, it's, you've it's, got, it's, all got to know me by now on our podcasts. <laughs> but um, it shows how you can Mr. get Mr. students said that I waffle and I went home and cried that day. Yeah, that was funny when um, they told you that. But then my students compared you to Dr. Watson. So, so we've both so lost. My Sherlock Holmes. So, you know, we've both lost. I gave that student a war, an award for <laughs> saying that you waffled. So, um, anyway, um, what you should do now is you mm. should go back and read this extract. As you read it, you're finding quotations that make us pity Esther Summerson. Okay. So, in particular, look out for similes and metaphors that make her seem quite a tragic figure. Like, she's caught up in her own mind. She's unhappy. Look out for that evidence. And now we've done this once. Now we've done this for the second time. As you're looking for those things, also consider if there's a little counterpoint as well. So, it might be that you find language that does suggest depression, but... There might be another so, aspect to it as we well. We don't entirely pity her. Perhaps there's something that means we might be jealous of her. Even absolutely, keep that, keep that, those eagle eyes open for alternative interpretations. Right, off you go. Pause this podcast. Go and read it through, and we will see you in a moment. A moment has passed. Welcome back to GCSE English Revision Pod. We are almost home. We are almost over very, the line. There. So, what we're looking at here is: Do we pity Esther Summerson? Do we? Do we? So, I would say, like, my first kind of, um, I would say here that actually I think we certainly do on a basic level, level mm. that actually despite her privileged position, her nice clothes, her martinis, her parties, 
Um, her feelings seem so tragic because this extract engages with how her life is spiralling out of control. I see. So my first point might be actually that the, something about the idea of her obsession with death. Okay. Um, so I might point about something that, that actually that, that we can agree with this statement simply because she has this strange obsession with death. So she's in a good place in her life. She's in what you would stereotypically consider a good place for a person of her age to be. Probably lots of you lot want in a couple of years. She's got amazing grades at school. She's gone to a top university in and America. And now she's in New York doing, a, doing an interesting internship and yet her thoughts continually wander towards death. Yes. So quotation I want to look at is actually this, this odd juxtaposition in the opening line between the sultry summer you know, something which would seem in the pathetic fallacy to imply something positive. And the fact that in this time, she was focusing only on the news story about how they electrocuted the Rosenbergs. Mm. She personifies the headlines of the newspapers telling her the stories as goggle-eyed headlines that are staring at her on every corner and at the fe- fusty, peanut-smelling mouth of every subway. So there's a lot of personification straight away, isn't there? Yeah, so she kind of personifies... Lots to analyse here. And actually, the truth is, in our model answer, we, ha- we don't analyse everything. You've got to pick what you're going to zoom in on. Yeah. So you could have analysed here the, the fact that the headlines are goggle-eyed, they're staring at her, implies that there's something she can't escape. She feels trapped, mm. followed by these newspaper headlines. And I like the, the idea that it's um, something temporary, like a headline, but also something permanent, like the mouth of a subway station. So it's as if both the both the temporary aspects of the world are watching her, but also the things that are always yeah. there are watching and her that too. Really, really brilliant um, metaphor. Peanut smelling mouth of every subway. It kind of personifies the subway as something that's consuming her. Mm. It certainly it shows that she feels threatened in this place where she should be having the time of her life. Puts you in mind of like a leery character at a yeah. bar or something. Yeah, because peanuts um, they don't smell very nice if you have them on your breath. Mm, my Top wife's tip, allergic. Going to on date. Well, you definitely mm. uh, shouldn't be eating them. Um, of an evening. No. So, um, I think perhaps the most interesting thing, though, here is looking at... She thinks about what it... She wonders what it would be like being burned alive. And so, the, the, I look at the verb here, burned. Mm. It's so kind of... It, it highlights this kind of connection she seems to feel with the executed criminals. Right. It's this kind of visceral engagement. There with, it is again. Shout out to our sponsors at Visceral. visceral. <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna to get that sweet so, visceral money one day. So, visceral obviously means kind of bodily. But this, mm. So, it's like imagining the reality of it. Um, that seems so strange for a teenager in New York. Yeah, she's exactly where her mind's kind of completely opposite of where you'd imagine it to be. Yeah, and there's the, the great simile that I think one of my favourite similes in the whole piece. She talks about how she once, one of her friends, Buddy Willard, showed her um, a cadaver, and that's a dead body that medical students would, would, would practice on. Also called like a cadaver, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You can say them either way. <laughs> Don't get me started on your pronunciations, Mr. Galley, or we will show in. Yeah. We've been showing. I'll be showing up. Uh, so, um, this cadaver yeah. um, floated up behind her eggs and bacon at breakfast and behind the face of Bolly Willard like a black, noseless balloon. I think it's such a grotesque simile, though. Because mm. balloons obviously have these connotations of kind of childish innocence, of parties, and yet for her, the balloon she's carrying around, metaphorically, is the memory of seeing a dead body mm, that floats along with her I and, suppose and the adjectives black noseless mm. stinking you know it's, it, the connotation is disgusting it's grotesque and it seems mm. totally at odds with what we imagine a girl on an on a in, impressive internship in New York should be thinking about right I think we also pity... I mean, perhaps the most important metaphor to analyse though the, um, sorry a simile to analyse is that um, she seems powerless so, um, Plath emphasises how Esther should have been steering New York like a private car. 
only I wasn't steering anything. And then she compares herself to um, being a numb trolley bus. Mm. So this implies that she's kind of stuck on tram lines. That, so a trolley bus is kind of like a tram. So like, it, it runs on tracks. So, if that, so that, the, it's a really interesting kind of simile because, you know, a car has these connotations of power. You can choose where you're going. You can drive New York. We're in one now. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very powerful man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Don't laugh. Um, and <laughs> power. And yet... Um, and yet, she says she's not driving a car. She's instead a numb trolley bus. So what we see here is the idea of her that she feels she has no control over her life. And this clearly makes us pity her. So it's a juxtaposition between what should be the land of opportunity of as America is sometimes known. And as a teenager on an internship in New York, it should be the world is opening up to her, right? She should yep. be experiencing life and all its wonderful opportunities coming her way. And yet... She feels stuck on tracks, right? She cannot, she cannot steer. She cannot, almost as if her path is predestined, like it's set out for her. And that might make us pity her. Yep. Um, there's one slight counter-argument you might have spotted. On a first reading, yeah. actually, you might have ambivalent feelings. That means mixed feelings towards her. Because, you know, these feelings come despite the fact that she is in a privileged position yeah. in New York society. She admits to her expensive clothes, her lavish lifestyle, drinking on some starlit roof, appearing in magazines. But I would argue then, I'd counter the counter by saying, ultimately, this just makes her, us pity her even more, that despite all these successes, these things we might actually be jealous of, mm. she realises that these, these, these gains that she's had have brought her nothing. Actually, what, what year was it written in again? Uh, I cannot remember. Oh, top was, 20, says, oh, doesn't sorry. even know the year it was written. Well, anyway, what I was going to say was it's perhaps a bit before its time in yeah. terms of mental illness, you know, and the idea yeah, yeah. that actually it doesn't matter how great your life is, you're still susceptible to those... Um, same. So what I should have said is, this is an unseen, so you obviously wouldn't know what year it was written. Obviously, I know that would have it was written in, my place. in 1963. Yeah, I'd say ahead of its time in, uh, in that Thank respect. you, Wikipedia. Yeah, always um, good. Uh, uh, so, uh, to summarise, question four, question two slash question three, because you could, could analyse structure as well yeah. as evidence, um, just like in question three. But harder to do, isn't it? Yeah, Only much do harder. do it if it's jumping yeah, out I, at you. I, I, I'd prefer to look at similes, metaphors, connotations, yeah, words. Exactly. But essentially, you're looking at an, your opinion about the statement, and you're backing it up with quotations and detailed analysis. Yep. And always keeping in mind evaluation. I think students, a common mistake is you get back into the old habit, and you're like, right, I'm just analysing the effect of this language, and you forget that you're analysing it in order to evaluate the statement. So, top tip, beginning and end of the paragraph, like an evaluation sandwich. Lovely. Start with evaluation, finish with evaluation. Bring it back. Eat that bread, that bready evaluation. Like a... I can't even think. I feel we should probably stop talking. Yeah. I think that's enough. I think that's question four. Fantastic. Add us on Twitter, guys. We've got over a thousand followers now. We are t- <coughs> taking over. We'll be like Kim Kardashian. We, we're going to break the internet if we keep this up. Uh, we are at G Revision Pod on Twitter. We can be emailed, can't we? Yep, at EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com. Um, please do rate us on iTunes if you're listening on that platform because I really like it. Mr. Forster, the first thing Mr. Forster tells me every morning is how many ratings and, uh, and listens we've got. So please make him happy. But on that note, if you haven't enjoyed it, please don't rate us on iTunes. Yes, then keep it to Avoid. yourself. Keep you know what? Tell Why no make one. it public? Tell no one. <laughs> All right. Have a lovely final full weekend before your English exams start for Good most luck. of you. Best of luck. Uh, and yeah. Bye bye.